This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. So we're covering quite a lot of material here, but hopefully it's, it's relevant and it's, it's, it's applicable. Um, in this particular session, we, we're going to look at the Roman Empire and we'll look at the character of, we'll look at one Bible character who lived and was persecuted by the Roman Empire and we'll focus on what we can learn from his life um, and his story. And this is one of my, this is one of my personal favorite characters to study, um, and especially this particular message because it really came out of a, a personal study and something that I was going through, um, and God sort of led me to study this. So I hope that it will be a blessing to you as well. Um, let's go ahead and open with prayer, and we'll get right into it, and then I'll try to end early so we have time for some questions. Let's pray. Eternal Father, we are so grateful for everything you're doing for us, um, for taking the time to commune with us. And Father, we pray once again that your Holy Spirit would be here. Speak to our hearts, Father. May Christ be lifted up and seen, and may he touch all of our hearts. We pray and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so as we look specifically at the Roman Empire, we want to study John, the disciple, John the Revelator on the Isle of Patmos and something from, from his life that, as I said earlier, spoke to me personally and that I just really want to share with you as we delve into a study of his life and his character um, this afternoon. And so you know, we really haven't gone through the historical background of, you know, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, but hopefully you've seen some of the elements that were unique about each empire and how Satan worked through them, but also how God's people have stood faithful. Have you seen that throughout the sessions? And so in this session too, you know, because you're such good Bible students and you know some of the story behind Rome and their political and military power and how Rome persecuted the saints and Rome was actually the empire that was, you know, there in Christ's own time. We want to focus on John and, and his experience in the context of, um, in the context of Rome. So hopefully that makes sense to you. Now, the emperor Domitian, Domi uh, am I saying it right? Yes, Domitian, who was in who was emperor during the time of John the Revelator. I don't want to focus so much on this, but you need to realize as you come to the book of Revelation that there is there's a polemic going on um, in terms of emperor Domitian in the Roman world, and that John's experience directly in in, in this context, um, because you know Domitian as emperor looks to Apollo to actually foretell the immediate future. And Domitian was actually very superstitious, even as the Roman emperor. And if you go back to the previous slide, you know, he was in, in power from 80, 81 to about 96. And he being superstitious was looking to Apollo and other superstitious means to sort of discern the future. And then God turns and reveals so much of the 
future to John, who Domitian persecuted. And so we want to look um, just really at John's experience and we'll move through his life from John being called as a disciple to what God does in John's life to how John ends up on Patmos. And Patmos is, I'll have to tell you that when I first studied this, I was beyond excited because what happens on Patmos is the pinnacle of John's experience with Christ. And we'll get there. We just have to build up to what happens on Patmos. Um, I'm really excited about that. So, John, what do you know about John the disciple? Before I get there, <laughs> forget, forget that you saw that slide. Um, <laughs> when you think about John, what comes to your mind? Who was John? How was he called? What, what is he known for? What is, who is he? Disciple of Jesus, what else can we say about him? One of the youngest of the disciples. Mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the inner three, one of the closest three. You remember when Christ was on the Mount Transfiguration, who, who did he have with him? Peter, James, and John. When Christ went into the Garden of Gethsemane and went a little further to pray, who was there in his agony with him? Peter, James, and John. They, didn't quite, they weren't quite next to him, but he took them with him. Um, he took, yes, he took them with him. Um, and so John was one of the closest. But as you look at John's life, I want you to realize that even as much as John grew to develop that relationship with Christ, he was a very imperfect man when Christ called him. Go to Luke chapter 9. And I want us to study one experience in, in John's life that just shows who was this disciple um, and what, what did God really do in his life. This, this sort of really blows my mind. Luke chapter 9. And let's read from verse 51 to 56. I'm going to ask a volunteer from one of you to please read that for us, just loud and clear. Luke chapter 9, from verse 51 to 56. Is anyone who has it? Mm -hmm. Now this account is also recorded in Matthew, I believe. And so when, when you read this account, Bible students, does this occur after or before John is called by Jesus? Calls after. So this occurs after John has been called by Jesus, after John has made the commitments to follow Jesus, yes? After he has left all, left his father to come and follow Jesus, yes? When you read this account, what words can you use to describe John's character based on this account? What kind of man is he? His? He's hot-headed. <laughs> what, what other words can you use? Impulsive? What else? Someone say jealousy? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's passing by a village of the Samaritans, and 
The Bible is telling us that because they were not prepared to receive him, John says, you know what, Jesus, and, and I'm sure that as John comes to Christ and expresses this, he must be very pleased with himself. He thinks he's offering the perfect solution, right? Here's this village that rejected Jesus. I have this, I know what we can do with them. And he's like, do you want us to command fire from heaven? First of all, assuming, John, you actually can command fire to come from heaven. I mean, you're assuming you can do that. But John says, do you want us to command fire to come down and consume them? And Jesus has to rebuke him and say, you know, you not even, you not even know what manner of spirit you are of. As you think about this and you can see, you know, he's impulsive. He is very much um, sectarian. He's very jealous of what privileges he's been given. He doesn't want anyone else to have this privilege. And here he is very quick to anger, very quick to want to destroy those who don't receive Jesus without even a second thought. Here is a man who has committed to follow Jesus who is far from perfect, yes? If anything, you'd look at him and say, I don't even know how you're with Jesus, <laughs> if these are the thoughts that you're thinking. I want to read to you this statement from Acts of the Apostles, page 539. It says that John had by nature serious defects. He was not only proud and self-assertive, so what was he? Proud and self-assertive, but also ambitious for honor, impetuous and resentful under injury. She says he and his brother were called what? Sons of Thunder. How do you gain a name such as Sons of Thunder? Evil temper, the desire for revenge, the spirit of criticism were all in the beloved disciple. So he's not looking too good right now, is he? Evil temper, the desire for revenge, criticism, impetuous, proud, self-assertive, resentful under injury. This is the man who has made a commitment to follow Jesus. And I know, you know, I'll, I'll make that point in a minute, but as we think about where John was, walking with Jesus, seeking to be in that close inner circle with Christ and realizing he was far from perfect, I want you to take a look at what happens in John's life. So you remember that in Luke chapter 9, he is commanding fire to come down and consume an entire village, yes? Now turn your Bible to the book of 1 John. Now as good Bible scholars, who here has read 1 John before? What is one of the words that occurs the most often in the book of 1 John? Just off the top of your head. Or one of the themes? It's love. So look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 10 to 11. I'm going to read it from the screen, but please look at your Bibles. <laughs> um, the Bible says, He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. He that does what? Loveth his brother. Now look at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 8, probably one of the most famous verses in the book of 1 John. The Bible says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Now I don't know about you, but this is particularly striking, because this is the same man writing the epistle of 1 John, and he's writing about 
brotherly love. He's saying, brethren, let us love one another. Let us love your brother, love your sister. But this same man who's writing about love so eloquently is the same man who in Luke chapter 9 said, I just want to kill them all and burn an entire village. And so John, the disciple, goes from wanting to, you know, command fire from heaven to consume an entire village to writing about brotherly love. And we see a man who once was proud, impetuous, self-assertive, revengeful, everything critical that you can think about, a man who's just imperfect. And we see this imperfect man go from where he was to writing about and living out this brotherly love. Acts of the Apostles, page 544. John desired to become like Jesus and under the transforming influence of the love of Christ. Under what influence? The transforming influence of the love of Christ. He did become what? Meek and lowly. A proud, assertive, revengeful man under the influence of Christ's love becomes meek and lowly. Self was hid in Jesus above all his companions. John yielded himself to the power of that wondrous life. John yields himself to Christ. And Christ takes a proud heart and makes it humble. You know, the powerful thing about Christianity, friends, is it's the only religion in which a human heart can be truly transformed. How does a revengeful, proud, boastful man like John become so meek and lowly? How does a murderer like Paul become a preacher of righteousness and a servant of Christ? How does a liar like Abraham become the father of the faithful? In what other religion is that kind of transformation possible? I mean, what can change the human heart? What? And when you see this happening in John's life, this is not fairy tale. This is not made up. This is a real man with real issues, completely changed by the power of the gospel. And you hear people, you know, being a Christian, and, and I know I've had this experience in my own life growing up in Christ, is that you get to a point in life where you've been struggling with something so long that you begin to wonder if victory is even possible. Am I resonating with anyone here? Am I the only one? <laughs> and you get to a point where you're like, Lord, at, at what point am I... I mean, you want to, and I don't know whether it's because we don't trust God's ability to save completely or we just think maybe we've just failed him too much that he doesn't want to try on us anymore. But John's life speaks to the fact that no matter how far removed we are from who he is, God is able to take that heart and totally transform it. Totally the same grace of Christ. Now, 
here is how that transformation happened, and we'll look at this in more detail in our last session. But I want you to look at this one on the screen, because I want you to, to, to focus on the words that are in bold, yes? So we're reading First John chapter 1, verse 2. I want you to look at what the words in bold have in common here. The Bible says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have looked upon, and our hands, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, sorry, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and shew unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. I'll pause there. What's the common thread? in those words I've put in bold there. Was this something that John had watched somebody else experience? This was a personal experience with Christ. John says, I'm writing to you. He writes the, the epistles of John are written to the church. And John says, beloved, I'm writing to you about that which was from the beginning, this eternal life who is Christ. But I'm not writing about a life that is just made up. I'm writing about something that I've seen with my own eyes and that I've heard. I'm writing about a fellowship with Christ that I myself have had. And there's this personal experience that he writes from. And it's that personal encounter, the seeing, hearing, looking upon, and handling of the word of life. And John says, I write because I've seen and I've heard and I've handled. Have we seen, heard, and handled? You know, we're talking about character. How do we stand? How do we develop? Here is a man who learned how to stand. But where did that learning come from? As the character of the divine one was manifested to him, John, John saw his own deficiencies and was humbled by the revelation. Day by day, in contrast with his own violent spirit, his own what? Violent spirit. He beheld the tenderness and forbearance of Jesus and heard his lessons of humility and patience. He yielded his resentful, ambitious temper to the molding power of Christ and divine love wrought in him a what? Transformation of what? Character. What are the practical things that John did, just from that statement? He saw his own deficiencies. How did he see them? By looking at Christ. And as he saw his deficiencies, what happened? Did he walk away in discouragement? No. See, because sometimes when we look at Christ and we see how perfect he is and how far we are from him, we can be tempted to get discouraged and to say, how can I ever be like such a perfect example? In John's, what we learn from John is that rather than get discouraged, we ought to be humbled. And in humility, we ought to come to Christ and learn of him day by day. 
and trusting that though we are so far removed from him, and though our characters are nothing like him now, that the same grace that transformed John is still active today. Amen? Amen. It is. You, you better believe that. Because he's still working. And so that means there's no excuse for, for dilly-dallying with temptation. There's no excuse for sitting on those darling sins and thinking, maybe I can overcome everything else, but this one, this one, God, is impossible. No, it's not. It's not. So I wanted to leave you with that just to encourage you to know that as I was talking with somebody earlier just today on my way to lunch, I never got to lunch because I was talking to someone and I had to go into a meeting. Um, but I was talking to this person just about this, this, this question of how do I get there? You know, I know where I want to get, and I'm not there. You ever had that feeling? And she was like, how do I get there? And you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing, because at the end of the day, the only answer is just look to him. In a practical, real sense, just look to him in humility of heart and ask him to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Because his grace is real, friends. And it, I'll come back to that. Um, once you look now at John's ministry, and you've seen how God transforms John and changes his heart, and that should speak to God's ability to change my heart and your heart, which is one of the greatest evidences for the power of Christianity, really, truly. A transformed heart is one of the most powerful evidences of the gospel. And as John is transformed, and John, pardon me, lives to be very, very old. He actually is one of the longest surviving disciple, the last one of them to die. And he witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And as John is witnessing all these things happening, and Jerusalem is destroyed, and most of the other early disciples are gone. John encouraged the believers at a time of terrible persecution when the power of Rome was really pressing against the Christian church. And so he writes these epistles that we find recorded in the Bible. He wrote many letters just to encourage the believers going through this persecution at, at this point in time in, in Christian history. But John did not just write to encourage, he himself experienced this persecution very personally in his own life. He was tried for his faith and actually accused by false witnesses. I mean, he went through a lot. And, and, and you have to remember that he, was, he wasn't getting any younger. Um, and in, here's where I want to get, because Emperor Domitian, who was the Roman emperor at, at the time of you know, John's later life and ministry, was really wroth with John for his work in his ministry and the way in which every time they, they tried to bring accusations against him, he spoke with so much clarity and conviction that Domitian said I just, they just wanted to have a way to get rid of him. And so John was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil. Um, you can't picture this, <laughs> right? Have you ever 
you guys cook, yes, right? Um, you ever put oil in a pan and left it to sort of, say you forgot and you were trying to cook something until the, the oil got really hot, then you want to drop something in it, what happens? And you're just going to back away. That's not even hot, but you, you think about a cauldron of boiling oil, not just hot, but boiling. John was cast inside because they were trying to get rid of him, to kill him. And you know what? God miraculously preserves his life and brings him out of that. And then Domitian says, that's not enough. I'm, I, I need to get rid of this, this man. They tried to, to boil him, to fry him to death in the oil. It didn't work. And so as a last resort, really, they banish him to the Isle of what? Or Patmos, expecting that on Patmos he will die of either old age or just of loneliness or depression or something. And so John gets banished to Patmos and this barren, rocky island, a place of banishment for criminals where really they expected him to die of hardship and distress or depression or something. So John gets to Patmos, and this is towards the very end of his life. And you have to go back and remember that he had gone through all these wonderful experiences with Christ. He had been called to follow Christ, been converted, changed. He had ministered for years, encouraging the church. And he had given his life for the sake of the ministry of Christ. And as he's getting to the end of his life, this is what he gets. He gets banished to Patmos. And I imagine there's a temptation to ask the question of, why God? Isn't there? Because how many times do you think to yourself, after everything I've done and I've been through for the sake of Christ and the gospel, why do I end up here? Alone on Patmos, this barren, rocky island, middle of nowhere, to die of hardship or distress and depression. I don't know why. And John could have been tempted to ask that question. Because oftentimes in our own Christian experience, it's at those moments, those Patmos experiences, when we find ourselves in this place of distress and hardship, that we ask, why would God permit this to happen to me? And we're not attempt to answer that question right now, but I want you to see how John deals with this situation. Because he could easily have said, Really, this is my reward. <laughs> After years of ministry, more than 20 years of ministry, and encouraging the church and faithfully withstanding trial, I'm left here to die in this forsaken place. But go to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. And I want to show you how, from the Word of God, we find that even on Patmos, even on Patmos, in the heat of trial among the rocks and cliffs of barren Patmos, John still communed with God. He still communed with God. And the pen of inspiration records in, in the book Acts of the Apostles that even on Patmos, John made friends and converts among the other criminals. Can you picture that? Banished on an island, instead of getting depressed and, and weary and tired, John ministers even on Patmos. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 to 11. <clears throat> 
I've actually been memorizing Revelation recently, and I really encourage you all to memorize Scripture. It really does so much for your depth of understanding and just your own personal spiritual growth. And it was in memorizing it that I came upon this wonderful thing that happens to John on Patmos. So the Bible says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos. And he says he was there for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Goes on to say, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a what? A great voice. He was in the spirit on the what? What is the Lord's day? So what does that tell you John was doing? worshiping, keeping the Sabbath, even on Patmos, in prayer, in devotion, faithfully, even on Patmos. And may God give us the grace to do the same. So John is, is praying, worshiping in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And the Bible says, this is the most exciting part of Revelation. The Bible says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a great voice. Let's keep on reading. I heard behind me a great voice, a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying what? In verse 11, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. He says, and what thou seest, right in a what? book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. What are they? Unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, and he lists all the seven churches. So John, just put yourself on, on, on Isle of Patmos and use your sanctified imagination to picture this, is, is sitting on the Isle of Patmos, he's having his, his devotion, he's, he's praying to God, and, and suddenly he hears behind him a loud voice as of a trumpet, and, and the voice speaking very clearly says, I am Alpha and Omega the first and the last. And I'm giving you a command to write these things. And then John says in verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spake with me. Verse 13, and being turned, I saw what? I saw what? Seven golden candlesticks. And he says that in the midst of the candlesticks, one like unto what? The son of man. So John turns around, and I, I can't picture what, what, must, what he must have thought or felt. Because he's sitting there, and he's having his regular devotion experience on Patmos. And as he's worshiping and praying and seeking God, he hears this, this voice behind him. And, and this voice speaks, and John turns. And who does he see as he turns around? Who does he see? He sees Jesus, the Son of Man walking among the seven golden candlesticks. Now this is the, the profundity of what happens, is that as John turns around to see Jesus, and Jesus, and he describes who he sees in verses 13, all the way down to 20, and the Bible describes, and he gives a, a description of how it is that he actually saw one like unto the Son of Man. In verse 17 of Revelation chapter 1, the Bible says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me and said, Fear not. 
and verse 18, he says, I am fear, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Okay, I know why I'm getting confused. <laughs> because I memorized this in King James Version, and I'm looking at not a King James Version. I was like, what is going on with me? <laughs> I reviewed this just yesterday. I have these verses memorized. Um, but so, so John turns around and, and he sees the Son of Man speaking to him. And you have to understand that this entire book of Revelation, the Bible says in chapter 1, verse 1, this is the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. So listen to this. Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to shew unto his servant things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel and to his servant John. The revelation of who? Jesus Christ. Where is John when he receives this revelation? He's in Patmos. So here's the, here's the, here's the, Here's my, my point, and then I'm done talking here. John gets to Patmos, and it is on Patmos, on that island of his banishment, on that barren, rocky island, where he's expected to die, that John sees the brightest, most glorious revelation of Christ ever seen. And he receives the revelation of Jesus the taking away of the veil on Patmos. He's the writer of the Gospel of John, but he's never seen Jesus as he sees him in Revelation. What are some of the portraits of Christ in the book of Revelation, just from what you know? He's the lamb that was slain and the lamb that was victorious. How else do we see Christ in Revelation? Students of the Word. The King that opened the scroll. You can go from the Revelation chapter 1 to 22, and you can see how this entire book of Revelation speaks about the Lamb. And all of this, John receives where? I'm Patmos. to see Jesus as he's never seen him before. And the place that was to be the place of his most difficult trial becomes the place where he sees Jesus the brightest. The most beautiful pictures of Christ he ever saw. I mean, John has never seen Christ the way he sees him in Revelation. He turns around and sees the Son of Man, the glorified Christ who is risen. And he sees him walking among the seven golden candlesticks. He receives the message from him for the seven churches. He sees the lamb open the scroll. He sees the lamb upon Mount Zion with the redeemed. I mean, this is glorious pictures of Christ. But where does he receive them? On Patmos. So here's my point. In that question of why God... And, and we think about those Patmos experiences that we go through. Because your Patmos may not be a literal island, but we've all been to that place 
where we just want to ask why God. That place of our most difficult trial, that place where things don't seem to make sense, that place where we, we may even feel that God has abandoned us, yes or no? In those moments, friends, maybe, perhaps, it could be, that that is where Christ will reveal himself to us the best. That maybe sometimes our trials are windows through which we should look to see Jesus. And that maybe when we get to Patmos, the prayer of our heart should not be, Why God? But should be, Open my eyes that I might see Jesus. Because maybe, just maybe, Patmos is where we will see him in ways we never saw him before. That revelations of Jesus are given on Patmos. And we're terrified of going to Patmos, aren't we? We're just terrified. But if the will of God takes you there, like it took John, and yes, you know, he, he died of old age, but that must, I just imagine how he must have felt just sitting on Patmos writing this book and thinking, wow, some of these things, maybe he didn't even understand himself. But this was the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave unto him. And God sent it by his angel to his servant John on the Isle of Patmos. So I want you to really think about the place of Patmos and trial in, in, in your life and your development as, as a Christian and in your character growth. And it's, you know, I'm not talking here about those trials that we bring upon ourselves, where, you know, if I didn't study for my exam and then I go in and I fail, I say, why God? Um, I'm not talking about that kind of thing that we bring upon ourselves, but I'm talking about situations when you're praying to God and maybe it seems like either your prayers are bouncing up the roof and coming down or it seems like God isn't hearing and it seems like maybe you're in this barren place alone and you don't quite know where to go, where to turn. In those moments, may I encourage you to just pray, open my eyes that I might see Jesus because he is near. He comes to Patmos to commune with John. And in that Patmos experience where you find yourself, he is near. And he wants you to see him. Maybe even in ways you've never seen him before. The revelation of Jesus. And as John sees Jesus as he's never seen him before on the Isle of Patmos. I want to close with this quotation. The experience to be gained in the furnace of trial and affliction is worth all the pain it costs. Thus God brings his children near to him that he may show them their weakness and his strength. Thus he teaches them to lean on him. Thus, he prepares them to meet emergencies, to fill positions of trust, and to accomplish the great purpose for which their powers were given. 
that God is seeking to bring us near to himself. And as you, as you contemplate where you are in your life right now, I just want to encourage you to look for and pray for those revelations of Jesus. You know, you, you may not see you know, thunder and lightning like John did on Patmos, but I mean, it'd be great if you did, <laughs> but, um, but Jesus is near. He's very, very near. And I know, you know, this is a very, very, as I said earlier, a very personal message for me because it came at a time when I was going through something that I did not quite understand. I didn't understand. You know, when I, when I, I, I graduated from, from college in Boston, I committed myself to serving God full-time in ministry, and, which I did for well over two, almost three years. And earlier this year, I got to a point in my life where it, it just came to, to, to crisis, and I can't go into details. But it was a very difficult time for me because I had to ask the question of, you know, God, I've committed myself to serving you completely. I mean, I've given my time. I put, away, I put aside my education, my degree, just to be in full-time service for God. And then something happens and everything goes under and I'm left thinking, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? And when I got to that place, I thought to myself, really, God? Like, I put everything on the line to serve you. I mean, I was a student at Harvard, and I took time off from school to go full-time service for a whole year. I almost lost my visa, almost lost my scholarship, almost lost everything because I wanted to serve God. I mean, all these decisions I had made in the service of God. And then I was like, and, and, and I was so tempted to think when things got to a place I wasn't expecting to think, after everything I've given, Lord, is this what I get? Like, I'm just left in the cold and I don't know what to do or where to go. And as I was thinking about that, that's when God impressed me to study this. And speaking to my heart and saying, in a tando, do we really serve God for reward? Do we? What if there was no reward to be gained? What if you gave everything and you lost everything? What if that's all God wanted? What if? Are you still willing to trust that even in this difficult time of not knowing where to go or what to do, are you willing to trust that the same God who has led you all those different ways in your life that you've committed yourself, that that very same God is still directing your steps even right now? that he's still revealing himself to you, that he's still seeking to teach you and to guide you day by day. And that in these moments of, of trial, it is when God is seeking to bring us near to him. But we think of it in opposite ways. We think of it as, oh, when I'm going through a difficult time, God is so far from me. Is that not what, what we think? We think, where is God? That I'm going through this difficult time. But it is in these moments that he is near rest. I mean, Jesus stood right behind John on Patmos. He stood right there as John was going through his devotions. Christ was right behind him 
and Christ speaks to him. He was so near. And so friends, I, I really, really want to encourage you. We go through difficult times because we need to grow in grace. And character is developed and refined in the furnace sometimes, most of the time. I want to close with this. Malachi chapter 3, and then I'll leave time for some questions. Say amen when you get there. Say have mercy if you still need time. I can't even find it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want to read this one verse and I'll tell you a story and now we'll have time for some questions so that we can hopefully interact a little bit. Malachi 3 verse 3, the Bible says, speaking about God, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of what? Silver. Story is told of a woman who was studying this chapter of Malachi and she came upon this verse that says that he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And she wanted to understand what does this mean that he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And so she said, okay, since I want to understand what this means, I'm going to go see a silversmith. So she went to see a silversmith and she, and she just said, I'm studying the Bible and just, I just want to understand how you refine silver, because I just came upon this verse that I need, I need to understand. So the silversmith was at his, you know, his, his work, and he's just going about his job as regular. He picks up a piece of metal, and he picks it up with, with tongs, and he places it in the midst of um, a fire, and the woman is watching him, and she says, I just want to observe your, your work. And as he sits there, he hold, the woman notices that he's holding this piece of metal in the tongs and he's watching it the entire time. And so this woman, you know, asks him and she says, well, do you have, you know, do you have to keep your eyes on it the whole time? He says, yes, I have to. And he says, I, I, I'm holding it in the hottest part of the flame because I want to remove all the impurities, but I'm, my eyes are on it all the time. Are you following me, friends? The silversmith is watching this piece of metal the entire time it's in the furnace. And the woman says, okay, so how do you know when it's pure? And I loved his answer, powerful. She says, how do you know when it's pure and you're done refining it? And the silversmith says, oh, that's easy when I can see my reflection in it. Do you get it, friends? He sits as a refiner and purifier of silver. If he's got you in that furnace, on that Padmas, he's watching you the whole time. And he's not just holding you there out of evil what it, intentions, no. He seeks to develop his character in you. And he's watching you the whole time. The fire will burn only the dross and suck away the impurities. He's not going to leave you there to burn and, and, and forget you. No, he doesn't put the, the, the metal there then say, I'm just going to go watch golf or do something else. Well, he's watching, he's there intent right there with you. So if he takes you to Patmos, friends, trust him. Are you with me? 
trust him. It's a difficult place to be as it was for John. But maybe, just maybe, he wants you to open your eyes and see the revelations of God that he will give you. Have I made sense? Let's pray. Loving Father, we're thankful for God's work in our lives and we pray even as much as we may intellectually understand that trials develop our character, it's still difficult, Father. And Lord, I don't know what everyone in this room is going through, but you do. And we just pray that wherever we may be, you might open our eyes to see Jesus and that the ways he reveals himself to us, we might understand and see and that beholding him, we can become like him as John did. Pray this in Jesus' name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.